Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah, named Manoah, from the clan of the Danites, had a wife who was childless and able to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman went to her husband and told him, A man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God, very awesome. I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name. But he said to me, You will become pregnant and have a son. Now then, drink no wine or other fermented drink, and do not eat anything unclean, because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from the womb until the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I beg you to let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. God heard Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman while she was out in the field, but her husband Manoah was not with her. The woman hurried to tell her husband, he's here, the man who appeared to me the other day. Manoah got up and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said, Are you the man who talked to my wife? I am, he said. So Manoah asked him, When your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule that governs the boy's life and work? The angel of the Lord answered, Your wife must do all that I have told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, nor drink any wine or other fermented drink, nor eat anything unclean. She must do everything I have commanded her. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, We would like you to stay until we prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord replied, Even though you detain me, I will not eat any of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Manoah did not realize that it was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that we may honor you when your word comes true? He replied, why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. Then Manoah took a young goat together with the grain offering and sacrificed it on a rock to the Lord. And the Lord did an amazing thing while Manoah and his wife watched. As the flame blazed up from the altar towards heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. Seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell with their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah and his wife, Manoah realized that it was the angel of the Lord. We are doomed to die, he said to his wife. We have seen God. But his wife answered, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from our hands, nor shown us all these things, or now told us this. The woman gave birth to a boy, and named him Samson. 
he grew and the Lord blessed him and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Manasseh Dan between Zorah and Eshtel. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring towards him. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and he liked her. Sometime later, when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass, and in it he saw a swarm of bees and some honey. He scooped out the honey with his hands and ate as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they too ate it. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. Now his father went down to see the woman, and there Samson held a feast, as was customary for young men. When the people saw him, they chose 30 men to be his companions. Let me tell you a riddle, Samson said to them. If you can give me the answer within the seven days of the feast, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. If you can't tell me the answer, you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. Tell us your riddle, they said. Let's hear it. He replied, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. For three days, they could not give the answer. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us, or we will burn you in your father's household to death. Did you invite us here to steal our property? Then Samson's wife threw herself on him, sobbing, You hate me. You don't really love me. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. I haven't even explained it to my father or mother, he replied. So why should I explain it to you? She cried the whole seven days of the feast. So on the seventh day, he finally told her, because she continued to press him. She, in turn, explained the riddle to her people. Before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town said to him, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Samson said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have sold my riddle. Then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of everything, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home, and Samson's wife was given to one of his companions who had attended him at the feast. Later on, at the time of the wheat harvest, 
Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. He said, I'm going to my wife's room, but her father would not let him go in. I was so sure you hated her, he said, that I gave her to your companion. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. Samson said to them, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So he went out and caught 300 foxes and tied them tails to tail in pairs. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails, lit the torches and let the foxes loose in the standing corn of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks and standing corn together with the vineyards and olive groves. When the Philistines asked, called Samson, the Timnite's son-in-law, because his wife was given to his companion. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. Samson said to them, Since you acted like this, I swear that I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. Then he went down and stayed in a cave in the rock of Etam. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. The people of Judah We have come to take Samson prisoner, they answered. Us. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. They said to him, We've come to you to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said, swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Agreed, they answered. We will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and led him from the rock. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came towards him shouting. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Then Samson said, With a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone, and the place was called Ramath Lehi. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned and he revived. So the spring was called En-Hakor, and it is still there in Lehi. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Thanks, Pete, for reading that passage to us. Hi, everyone. Let me add my welcome to Feeds from the Start. I'm Mark. I'm one of the ministers here. Let me pray for us before we look at this long passage together. Father God, thank you so much indeed for the book of Judges. Conscious that this is a very challenging book to us. 
as you put your divine finger upon human sin and idolatry. But I pray, Father, that by your Spirit we would heed your challenge today and we would leave transformed by it. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, the more familiar a Bible passage is to us, the easier it is for us to miss the nuances, the subtleties, the rich truths that God has for us. And the story of Samson is one of the most familiar stories in the Old Testament, particularly if you grew up at church, grew up in a Christian home, I'm sure you will have heard of it. John Milton wrote about it, Handel composed an oratorio on it, Rembrandt painted it, even Tom Jones sang about it. But I suggest most of us don't even know the half of it. Samson and Delilah, the famous part, that is chapter 16, that is next week. First of all, we have three whole chapters, 13, 14, and 15, all about Samson too. And they aren't the easiest of chapters to get your head around, because Samson is something of an enigma. On the one hand, chosen by God, his birth announced in advance, empowered by the Holy Spirit. But on the other hand, one of the most corrupt and flawed judges in the whole book. So what do we do with this guy? What do we do with Samson? Do we cheer for him as he takes out the Philistines one by one? Or do we jeer at him? This cheating, hustling, lying, lusting, hot-tempered, violent wrecking ball of a man. What do we do? We tend to see the world in black and white, goodies and baddies, heroes and villains. But what do we do when they're a mixture of the both? We often struggle with the more complex characters. Is this the sort of leader we should be looking for today? Is this the sort of leader God is using today? Or is there, in fact, something more nuanced and something more subtle going on? Well, let's take a look now under three headings. First, in chapter 13, we see God at work through the birth of Samson. God at work through Samson's birth. Verse 1 of chapter 13, page 256, again. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah, named Manoah, from the clan of the Danites, had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that no drink, no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb, and he will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now, if you've been with us through the sermon series on Judges, you will know how dark things have got as we've been taken on this journey down this sort of helter-skelter of human sin 
and idolatry. It has got worse and worse each week. Have we seen the horror show that results from it? But now here, seemingly out of nowhere, there is light and there is hope and there is this dawn of a new day as God speaks very powerfully into the darkness of this situation and says to this woman, you will give birth to a son. This promise now of life. Last week, one of God's leaders sacrificed their own child. Now God is promising a new child from barrenness, from childness. God speaking to his people again after the silence of chapters 11 and 12. And this is to be no ordinary son. Did you notice here? A special son, a holy son, a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. And verse 5, a deliverer of God's people. And so we see as we come to chapter 13, God is still here. God is still at work. God is speaking to his people. God is doing miracles again. God is promising a deliverer for his people. And you might think to yourself, well, wow, what's changed since last week? What have the people done such that God is now speaking to them and working in this way? Did they finally come to their sentence, to their senses? Did they turn from their sin, their idolatry, you know, from their heart in a genuine way? What did they do? What's the answer? What have they done? They have done nothing. Again, verse 1, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. And what did they actually not do this time? Do you remember these cycles? The Israelites do evil in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord sells them into the hands of their enemies. So they cry out to the Lord, please save us. And when the Lord saves them, they go back into sin and evil. And the Lord hands them over and they cry out, please save. What's happening this time? There is no crying out. Again, they did evil. God sells them. No crying out. They don't even want to be saved. And yet still, God steps in in this incredibly powerful way to save them from this desperate situation, even when they don't realize it. What a God we have that he treats his people in this way, saves them when they least realize it, when they least deserve it. You know the way jewelers often show their jewelry, the rings on a dark background so you can see the beauty of the diamond, or the way you and I can only see the stars in the darkness of the night sky. In a similar sort of way, it's only in the darkness of human sin, the darkness of human idolatry and where it leads and that hell going down and down that finally we can see the brightness and the beauty of God's grace to us and the way he acts towards us when we don't deserve it and takes the initiative to save us even when we're running from him and not even crying out to him. That is the God of Bible, the God of grace. Treating us in ways we simply do not deserve. God breaking into people's lives when they least deserve it. I hope this is an encouragement to you today. If you have friends, family, members, colleagues who show no interest in Jesus Christ at all. And you think, wow, could they ever turn to Jesus? Could they ever become a Christian? I've got a few people like that in my life close friends, some family members. I'm not interested, Mark. I will never become a Christian. 
Don't you ever talk to me about it again. And it is so easy to give up, to be despairing. Can you see God can break into people's lives just like that? Breaks into a whole nation here. Can break into your family, your workplace, this society. When we least deserve it. When we're not even crying out for it. If you're someone here looking into Christian things, great to have you here. Do you see God can break into your life whenever he wants? Is he doing it right now in this sermon? Chatting to someone this week, they said to me straight up, Mark, do you think people can change, really change, have real lasting change? Can I really break free from this addiction? Can I really stop worrying about what others think of me? Can I really find freedom from the social media affirmation cycle? Is there really any hope for our marriage? And the wonderful good news of the gospel is that the answer to all those questions is yes. There is always hope with God. We may not be able to change ourselves, but God can always change us. And sometimes he does it when we don't even realise it, when we're not even looking for it, not even crying out to him for it. Which doesn't mean we shouldn't be crying out to him, we should. Think of the change that would come if we did. But it does mean that no matter how bad things get, no matter how low the helter-skelter of sin idolatry we fall, no matter how much the darkness overtakes us, no matter how hopeless we feel, there is always hope. The light of God's grace always there. And it's sometimes in the darkness that finally we get to see it. God at work through Samson's birth. Secondly, God at work despite Samson's sin. Because the anticipation couldn't be higher as we get to the end of chapter 13. We skipped over verses 6 to 23. Basically, the husband's got no idea what's going on, so the angel informs him. He's a bit slow on the uptake. And by verses 24, we read, The woman gave birth to a boy, just as God had promised, and named him Samson. He grew, and the Lord blessed him. And verse 25, the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. And so we are all set to meet this deliverer, this holy man, this one who's going to bring deliverance to God's people. And then we meet him in verses 1 and 2 in chapter 14. And it seems something else is stirring inside him instead. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I've seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Not the best of introductions. He is meant to be defeating the Philistines, not marrying one of them. And his parents try to dissuade him in verse 3. Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? Which is not an issue of race, by the way. This is an issue of faith. God always wants his people to marry fellow believers. But Samson ignores the godly wisdom of his parents, instead replying, get her for me. She's the right one for me. 
In other words, I know what's right. I know what's right for me and my life, not you, not God. And we might think to ourselves, like, have we got the wrong person here? Thought we're expecting some great holy one, promised by an angel beforehand, one who's blessed by God. What is he doing completely ignoring God? Well, it doesn't get any better in verses 5 to 20, as Samson now shows no regard for his Nazarite vow either. We skipped over this in chapter 13, but basically with a Nazarite, there were three big no-nos. No alcohol, no eating anything unclean, and no cutting your hair. But what do we see in verses 5 to 9? We see Samson eating something unclean as he scoops out this honey um, from the dead carcass of a lion that he'd killed earlier. He eats it as he goes along. He gives it to his parents, which makes them richly unclean too, and he doesn't tell his parents about it. Then in verses 10 to 14, we see him involved with alcohol. Um, Samson held a feast, that word feast in Hebrew deliberately implying the consumption of alcohol. And then in verses 15 to 20, Samson does indeed strike down 30 Philistines from Ashkelon dead. But there is no mention of him doing this, you know, for God's glory or to um, rescue um, his own people. This is just him trying to clear a debt that he's got himself into as he was betting with his 30 companions with this riddle which they solved by threatening his wife and, his fa- and her father. And so it's just not a very good picture of Samson we get here. As he ignore God's word, as he disregards his vows... And if we're hoping it's going to get any better in chapter 15, well, it doesn't. In verse 1, he goes to visit his wife, only to discover that her father has given her to one of his companions and offers him the younger sister instead. Samson goes nuts in verse 3. This time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. The implication being he knows full well he had no right to get even with them before, but that is what's driving him here, both then and now, a personal vendetta, tit for tat, getting even. And this personal vendetta spirals out of control in verses four to eight. Samson destroys the Philistines' corn and vineyards with these 300 foxes with the torches of fire on their tails. Uh, The Philistines respond by burning Samson's wife and her father to death, and then Samson responds by attacking them viciously and slaughters many of them. And in case, again, we're thinking that Samson is doing this for God's glory and for the salvation of Israel and their people, we're told explicitly in verse 7, since you've acted like this, I swear that I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. This is no more than a revenge attack from Samson settling the score, a personal vendetta getting even with them. So, ladies and gentlemen, I present to you um, God's deliverer. As I said at the start, this lying, lusting, God-dishonoring, cheating, hustling, violent, hot-tempered, wrecking ball of a man. On the one hand, incredibly gifted by the Lord. Three times we're explicitly told in chapter 14, verse 6, chapter 14, verse 19, and chapter 15, verse 14, that the Spirit of the Lord comes powerfully upon him. Yet, on the other hand, incredibly ungodly. Disobeying God's word, disobeying God's parent, 
disregarding his vows and only going after the Philistines to settle a personal score. What do we do with Samson? Do we cheer for him? Do we jeer at him? Most of us cheer for him, don't we? If we've heard this story growing up, if we've heard this story before, it's Samson, it's God's hero. He defeats the Philistines. God's spirit's upon him. Most of us don't even notice his faults first time round. And Nazarite, what's that? Even if we do, we tend to look over them. Because look what he's doing, because the Lord is with him. He's bringing success. He's defeating the Philistines. And we do so at our peril if we consider Samson like this. Because we are not intended to look over his faults. We have already seen in this book so far how an idolatrous nation leads to an idolatrous leader. We have already seen as God's people go down this vortex of human sin and idolatry and get worse and worse, so the rulers and the judges do too. Such that now with this person, Samson, yes, he can be incredibly gifted by God, yet on the other hand can be incredibly ungodly as well. And we must not conflate the two, his giftedness and his godliness. How many church leaders are being given a free pass right now because they are bringing the people in, because the church is growing, because their ministry is a success, even though their marriages are in trouble, their personal lives a mess. And we think, well, look, it doesn't really matter. I mean, because look, the Lord's blessing them and look, the ministry's going great. And we overlook the godliness because of the giftedness. Because the Lord's blessing them. And we do so at our peril because the Lord never blesses ungodliness and the consequences will come. Think of Mark Driscoll, American pastor, under God, he was the leader of a Bible study that grew to something like 14,000 members over 15 church services from 1996 through to 2014. His sermons were downloaded 260,000 times on average a week. People had noticed his aggressive style, his flavorsome choice of words from the pulpit, his perceived misogyny, his accusations of plagiarism. But you know what? Look what he's doing. I mean, he's reaching one of the least reached cities in America. People are coming to Christ. People are growing in Christ. The ministry's exploding. Look at the church. Surely everything's okay. Until some formal complaints are made against him by the church staff and his abusive uh, behavior and domineering leadership style were exposed and he had to leave the ministry and the Mars Hill Church network was disbanded. Now don't get me wrong, it is a wonderful thing when God is at work in someone in spite of their sin. But it never means that God is okay with that sin. And nor should we. 
We have less of the cult of celebrity here in the UK. But when it comes to leadership, are we still not tempted by the impressive? By the well-known popular preacher, by the articulate speaking gifts, the slick marketing skills. Oh, I wish my pastor was more like that. I really hope that is not how you view me and Pete. Never conflate giftedness and godliness. God doesn't, we mustn't. Never ever give someone a free pass, a leader, a free pass on their godliness or ungodliness because of their giftedness. God doesn't do it, we mustn't. And so when it comes to leaders, pray for their faithfulness. Pray for me and Pete's faithfulness to our wives. Pray for our honesty with each other and our sin. Pray for our holiness. Pray for the holiness of the entire leadership team. Giftedness without godliness is a nightmare. Godliness, no matter the giftedness, is always the path to fruitfulness and success in ministry. And we will serve you much better that way. Never conflate the two. God is at work in spite of Samson's sin, not because of it. Well, look, thirdly, finally, and most disturbingly of all, God is also at work through Samson's sin. It seems to be that God actually uses his hot-temperedness and his violence to bring about his purposes. This is the final thing for us to see. Just flip back for a moment to verse 4 of chapter 14. See this verse in brackets. We're often tempted to skip over the verses in brackets, think they're not very important, when actually a lot of the time this is the really important bit. This is where the author's saying, look, this is what's really going on. And he tells us in verse 4, his parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines for at that time, they were ruling over Israel. In other words, the Lord allowed Samson to sin in this way, to ignore his word, to ignore his parents, to go after this girl, Philistine girl, not because he approved of it in any way, we know he didn't, we've seen that already, but because he could use it to confront the Philistines who were ruling over Israel. Now, why such drastic measures at these? Well, come back with me now to chapter 15, verse 9 where we see what it means for the Philistines to rule over Israel, and then we'll draw this together. Verse 9 of chapter 15, the Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. The people of Judah asked, why have you come to fight us? So the people of Judah, God's people, respond, we have come to take some, some prison, sorry, <coughs> the people of Judah asked, why have you come to fight us? We have come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Etam and said to Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. Again, this tit-for-tat personal vendetta. They said to him, we've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Now, do you see what's going on here? This is the tribe of Judah, right? This, at the start of the book, this is the most godly tribe. This is the tribe that was crying out to the Lord and seeking his face. Who should go up into the land and take it? But now look at Judah now. 
They are so affected now by the culture around them, so used to the Philistines ruling over them and fine with it. They don't even recognize God's deliverer when they're right before their eyes. They don't even care about being rescued. And they're even prepared to betray Samson, one of their own, who is God's leaders, into the hands of the Philistines to maintain the status quo and not to upset it in any way. And this is just how bad things have got. And this is why God goes to such drastic measures to bring confrontation and conflict between the Philistines and the Israelites. To break his people free from their idolatry. Because this is the drastic measures that's required to do it because they're so lost in it. This is what is needed to open up their eyes to see how desperate their situation is and to divorce them from their idols and to bring them back to him. I think of the credit crunch back in 2008. Many people lost their jobs and a Christian friend of mine lost his job too. And after it hit him and he lost his job, he said he didn't know who he was anymore and that he had lost his way and he'd lost the bigger picture. And it was a horrible thing for him to lose this job in this way, this conflict, this confrontation in his life. And yet, it reorientated him to his family, it reorientated him to the Lord. And he says that he thinks the Lord brought this into his life to break him free from an idolatry of work, of placing far too much emphasis and focus on it. Because sometimes that is what it takes to bring people back to the Lord. He has to bring this conflict, this confrontation, this difficulty to break the idols in people's lives. I was chatting to Pete just this week. He was telling me a story of a lady who was praying for her father for years a very proud man, um, a very self-sufficient man. And she prayed, Lord, please, whatever it takes, would you bring it into his life? Whatever it takes to bring him to faith in you. Now, this man, a couple of years later, contracted prostate cancer. And it really brought this man to his knees. And actually, it broke his idol of pride, it broke his idol of self-sufficiency, and modestly under God, he put his faith in Jesus Christ as the one person who brings hope in the face of death. Now, there could be all sorts of reasons for why that man contracted cancer, but this daughter is absolutely convinced that this is the, was a part of the answer to her prayer. That this is what it took to break this man out of his own idolatry, to bring him to the Lord. A terrible thing. But used by the Lord to bring him to faith. God is at work in spite of sin and the consequences of sin. Many of us will be aware of that, but are we equally aware that God is also at work through sin and the consequences of sin? Conflict, confrontation, to break our idols, draw us back to him. Be it ending a relationship, if that is what it takes for us to grow in the divine relationship to keep us single if that's what it takes to break the idol of relationships and the idol of marriage. Even allowing us to lose our job if that will help us and the only means of helping us keep the bigger picture in mind. Of even keeping us from that promotion 
until we no longer idolize money or the status it will bring. God will do whatever it takes to bring you back to him. Whatever it takes, and sometimes that does mean conflict, it does mean confrontation, it does even mean using other people's sin. Now, most of the time we pray away conflict, we pray away confrontation, Lord, take this away, what are you doing, don't you love me? And we don't realise that God loves us way more than we can possibly imagine. And that particular conflict, that particular confrontation, not all, but is used specifically to draw you closer to him. Of course, Samson only led Israel for 20 years, we're told at the end of the passage, and it's still the days of the Philistines. But in Jesus Christ, we have someone who leads us for all eternity. We have someone who has broken the power of sin in our lives, who has paid the penalty of the guilt of our sin, who has promised a day when the presence of sin will finally be gone. And so Samson still points us to Jesus as one whose birth was announced and advanced by an angel, who was set apart to be holy. But unlike Samson, Jesus was perfectly holy. Lived a perfect life. And died in our place. One who God used despite the sinful wickedness of humanity, nailing him to a cross to bring the offer of salvation to the whole world. And so I hope you can see, you can be absolutely confident if you are trusting in Jesus Christ today that he is at work in this world, in your life, working out all things, conflict, confrontation, even other people's sin, genuinely for your ultimate good. And if you doubt that, look to Jesus Christ, look to his birth, Look to his perfect life. Look to his death on your behalf. Know it to be sure. And come back to Jesus. Confess your sin to him. Cry out to him. And be transformed by him. Well, let me pray that for us now. Let's pray. Father God, thank you very much for these three chapters of Samson before the famous bit with uh, Delilah. And thank you for what it shows us about you at work in this world with your people when they least realize it and when they least deserve it. That you're at work in spite of the sin of this leader, and that you can be at work even through his sin to bring the outcome that we desperately need, which brings so much glory to your name. Help us to see it. Help us to realize it in our own life. And please, by your spirit, we'll be transformed by it too. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.